2: putting a uh, little pillow behind my back, nice and comfortable. I've got my drink in front for me, which is a Diet Coke today, so I'll be a little bit burpy. Haven't got a cup of tea on the go. Uh, I've got a cake in front of me that I'm looking forward to diving into. That must mean this is Extra Mile, part two. Hello, <laughs> welcome everyone. How are you doing? Hope you're well. Hope you're having a good weekend or weekday, depending on when you're listening to this. I'm recording this on a Saturday. Normally I wouldn't because it's a little bit noisy on the canal on the Saturdays. lots of people going past in, uh, on bikes. Uh, and boats going past, doing what they need to do. All good, all fine. If this was a regular murder mile, I'd be kind of like,
1: Oh, bloody hell,
2: what are these bastards doing? You know, getting annoyed with all the extraneous sounds that are going on. But, because this is an extra mile, I'm okay with that. So it's a nice glorious day. Sun is shining. Uh, Birds are singing, I've got all the doors open, all the windows open, and we're going to do Extra Mile, which is great. So if you're new to Murder Mile, I say this every week, but I have to. uh, This is Extra Mile. Uh, This is not a regular episode. If you're new to Murder Mile, uh, probably would be best if you uh, go back into the catalogue. You've got loads of episodes to choose from. You've got 45 so far, including, excluding Extra Miles, which are already in there. Uh, So I would recommend... Obviously, if you know anyone who who uh, has listened to Murder Mile before, ask them. Ask them what they'd recommend to go back to. Um, I recommended a few last week. This week, I would recommend going back to the Richard Rhodes Henley episode, which I believe is number sixteen. The Alexander Litvinenko episode, which is number twenty. The Marta Ligman episode, which is twenty-two or the last episode I did, which was Camille Gordon. Uh, all of them are very different. They're designed to be very, very different. So hopefully each week you'll approach them and you'll go, oh, what's this? What's this new story? And even if you know the story, which I hope you won't, because I do try and dig deep into stories that you would have never heard of, or, or if you already have heard of it, uh, it's hopefully it's something that you'll be a different angle that you've never heard of before. So um, dive in, have a listen to some of the old episodes, see what they're like. Let's uh, see if you enjoy them. Or if not, stick with this episode because I'm going to be playing some clips. Because um, we are going to be talking about how I find stories and how I research them and how I write them as well. Uh, I thought that might be interesting from last week's episode, which was about kind of my favourite episodes. This week is about story and research. And next week, while, while I'm away researching, uh, this next week's episode is going to be about sound effects and music and how I kind of edit together um, Murder Mile. Um, might not sound interesting to some people, but but it, it is. Trust me, it's, it, there's some uh, interesting stuff in there. I think so. So before we begin, we have to uh, focus on the elephant in the room. Not having a cup of tea. Ah, trying to wean myself off the danger, which is which is diet coke, because of all the um, chemicals in it and the aspartame, which does which gives me headaches, but you know what, sod it, I want one today, I want a headache, and uh, what is today's cake, obviously, because I have a new cake, every time I, well that seems to be the the habit at the moment, is that um, I have a cake, Every time I uh, record Extra Mile, which is normally at the end of each normal episode. Uh, if you're new to Murder Mile, these are not what the episodes are about. Uh, normally, it's very structured and it's very based on story, and it's you know, it's it's like it's like watching a radio play. But Extra Mile is kind of freeform. It's like this. There's no edits. Um, there's no sound effects. And normally, it starts with me having a cake. Can you guess what today's cake is? Can you smell it? Can you see it? I can. It is. Dramatic pause there because i know you're you're on baited breath at the moment to work out what my cake is it's two cakes in fact um it's a chocolate oh no no what am i saying chocolate i'm an idiot 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 it's 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 a custard donut oh but it's a long custard donut it's kind of a long custard donut with a vanilla custard in the center with kind of a um, a sprinkling on top there's two of them oh I do love I do love custard oh god now I should really wait to the end but you know what um, <laughs> mm. God, that's good mm. there's two of them they're long as well they're about six inches long which is very long as we all know six inches is very long um it's a long donut but with the custard kind of piped in the centre with a kind of icing sugar, not icing sugar, caster sugar on top. Is that the word? I don't know. Why am I asking you? You can't let me know. You probably could. You could message me in about two weeks' time when this goes out. Uh, so, because I'm... This week, when you listen to this, I'll be at the National Archives. God, that crow is really loud. Uh, I'll be at the National Archives recording the big multi-parter that I'm working on at the moment, which is going very well. Very excited by it. I thought I'd... Uh, introduce you to um the way that i kind of write and research murder mile stories because i try and make them very different for you i try not to be i try not to be the kind of standard storyteller where all they do is basically give you a chronology of what the story is and my hope is that you come to murder mile and you'll hear stories that you've never heard before but if it is a story that you have heard before, I will give you an entirely different spin on it. So even if it's a story that you've never heard before, even if you listen to my episode, and then you go, oh, I want to learn more about that. And you go off and do your own research. You will go, oh, hang on. This is an entirely different story. What I try to do is find find the story within the story because there's nothing worse. And I've mentioned this before than going through, than, than dedicating your time to an episode. And, you know, all of that time is valuable. All your time is valuable. And I appreciate you taking the time to listen to my podcast i really do appreciate it so i feel that i have to give you something different and i don't i think it's i think it's rude for me to sit here and just basically recant everything that you could read on wikipedia i have to give you something different so that's what i try and do with murderball is give you something different (gasps) different and exciting and uh hopefully something that you won't get anywhere else Uh uh-oh oh the burps have started i apologize i i hid that one the worst thing is i've just had a cheese and chive sandwich as well i love cheese and chive but it makes me very burpy and so does diet coke right let's dive into some clips before before i get super burpy yeah super burps are on the way don't worry about that so um how do i go about finding the stories um at the start, as you probably know, uh, Murder Mile, the true crime podcast, eri- what is that? Do you hear that? That was a loud one, that, was, that could be the white geese that are outside, the white geese that I mentioned last week with the big prominent noses, <gasps> they can be quite quite loud, um, so uh, Murder Mile originated because I was doing a guided tour of Soho, it's something I do every Sunday, I, have, uh, I enjoy that, I do one a week, I have, have some good fun. Um, But there were loads of stories that I couldn't tell. I couldn't get on the tour. The original tour was three and a half hours long. I cut it down to about two hours to make it manageable for people because it could be a lot of information. But I realised there was a lot of stories that I I either couldn't tell or couldn't tell fully. So um, that's why I decided to start doing the podcast so I could really sit down and really focus on uh, these stories and just give them the time that they deserved uh, and tell the full story: Bo going past, driving far too fast because they're too busy chatting. Idiots. Um, so um, yeah, there was loads of stories. So, so when I started at the very beginning, this is um, so uh, this is oh, as I record this. This is technically the what? Burps. The one-year anniversary of Murder Mile. Happy anniversary. I haven't done anything with that. I was meant to do a big celebration, but I forgot. I was just too busy in the archives. So, um, um, I uh, forgot what I was talking about. Uh, Yeah, no, so I had uh, loads of original stories at the start, and I thought these are stories I can't get on the tour, so I did uh, the Denmark Place Fire, which I used to do on the tour. I don't kind of do it as much anymore. The uh, Tony Meller episode, episode two. Uh, the, Obviously, the bombing of the Admiral Duncan pub it's a little bit too sensitive to do on the walk. I try to be sensitive with people's, the locals' needs. Do you know, the last thing they want on a Sunday morning is me standing there and going, and then this person was blown up and they lost legs. And it's just, you know, it's it's better to do a nice sensitive episode on the podcast. I can kind of get away with it. So I play a sensitive game on the tour. So I did that on the episode. But after a while, I was like, oh, I need, there was some some stories that I just, I just wanted to... Uh, start finding some new stories that would entertain me rather than recanting stories that I already knew so uh, that's when I started sitting down obviously I did The Deadly Dentist that was there I did Dutch Lair which I do on the tour but it's an entirely different perspective that I do on the tour Um, so even if you listen to the episode 4 the Dutch Lair episode if you come on the tour you'll hear an entirely different side of it you'll hear the side that I won't tell you on the podcast Um, just because I don't want, want those two stories to tread on each other Um, And then I kind of started moving forwards and started going in search of stories that I'd never heard of before. Uh, I think the first one was Ginger Ray, was one of the first episodes I found in the archives. Uh, I'll go into that very shortly because I think the Ginger Ray episodes, episodes 8 and 9, really opened my eyes to stuff. But um, what I started to do now is instead of sitting down and going going through books and newspapers, trying to find cases, uh, I just rely on instinct now. So, what I do, I don't read books, I don't read newspapers, and there's a big reason for that, is that I find that if you're reading another writer's uh, take on the case, that's what you're being fed, is a bias. And even if they sit down and they, they say, these are the facts, you're still getting a bias, you're still getting a cherry-picked version of... Uh, their story so what i like to do is attack the files entirely fresh Uh, i go through the national archives they have a nice database basically i put in a rough postcode like w1 which is where Soho, where soho is i put um i put in the word murder or manslaughter and then i search and sometimes cases come up um i expanded it slightly in season two hence we've got we've got bigger uh we're not just w1 we're wc1 wc2 w2 i think is in there as well which is paddington area as well which we did that for the blackout ripper and that led to some really interesting new cases that i'd never come across before so I'm going to play you a clip now. Don't worry, it's not just me waffling. Here's some clips. Uh, <laughs> and that gives me time to have some cake, uh, cake and coke, cake and coke. Lovely. Nice, nice mix. Uh, and I'm going to show you a clip from episode 35, which is the uh, failed assassination attempts on uh, Abd al-Razak Saeed al-Naif. You're welcome. Who is the former Iraqi prime minister. Here's the clip. The first assassination attempt on the life of Abd al Naif took place on Monday, the 14th of February 1972, at 3 pm. Or it would have done, had Kazim not been so awkward, odious, and inept. That afternoon, as if the city's decrepit old sewers had been blocked by a steamy, stinking cesspool of human waste, A bad smell returned to 35 Brynston Square. And dressed in a crumpled grey raincoat, a tatty brown suit, and a battered grey trilby, the stuttering rambling shambles of Kazim slinked up the stone stairs, hung by the mansion block's black front door, and buzzed the intercom of flat 21. With a crackle of static, Abda answered, But with this being the early 1970s, an era long before video intercoms, this call was strictly audio only, and having no idea who it was, the general let out an audible groan when he heard the nasal whine of Abda is Kazim. Abda was too tired for this, too fed up, too bored and too frustrated. In essence, the conversation broke down like this. Uh, Abdur, it's Kazim. Yes. We we must have a meeting. It's urgent. About what? Uh, things. Come down. Uh, we'll go to the Portman Hotel. Have coffee. Have tea. Might eat. We. Oui. Who's this we? We. Oui. You, me, and some
1: some people. You must come.
2: At which, feeling uncomfortable by the vagueness of the details, and with his patience truly tested, Abder replied, No. A long silence ensued, and although Abder couldn't be certain, he swore he heard the scuffle of feet and the mutter of frustrated voices, as Kazim piped up with, Come on down here then. We can talk here. So that, for me, that was a really fascinating case because I didn't know anything about it at all. Uh, that's part of season two. It was, I think it was the first episode. It's episode 35 in, in the entire run. Um, and I I knew nothing about these people at all. I knew nothing about uh, Abda. I knew nothing about his, uh, uh, his wife. I knew nothing about Kazim, who was the alleged uh, assassin. Or the or the person who led to the assassins being in allegedly, because uh, he was never convicted, uh, and it was a fascinating case. And literally, I sat there. I got the file in front of me. It's in the national archives. A nice big fat file. Uh, it's a it's a very musty, like all of them. It's a very musty, papery file. It's kind of covered in kind of a brown. Uh, a kind of a yucky brown kind of uh, papery file, and it's tied together with with a little bit of rope, like um, a bit of ribbon, just to hold it in place. Uh, When you sit there, because the files are quite old, you have to... They give you uh, some kind of, like, triangular pieces of sponge so they're black and they sit either side and they're like a uh, kind of a slab of cheese and they come in a v-shape and you put them together and then you put the file on top and that way you don't break the file uh, or you don't injure the paperwork you kind of sit there and slowly methodically go through it oh uh, there used to be days where they'd force you to wear uh, uh, gloves to go in there you had to wear like uh, special gloves and I watched a video the day before I went in there I watched a video and it said you have to watch this video before you come in the National Archives so I watched it and it said put the file in, in, the, in the V-shaped sponges and then put on the gloves and then turn the pages and then on my first day a security guard came up to me and said don't do that don't use the gloves. And I was like, I I just watched the video. They said use the gloves. And he said, no, we found out that the gloves actually cause more damage to the paperwork. It's better that you just use your bare hands. And yet they still have the video online. Baffling. Anyway... So that was the file, literally, and it's in no discernible order. Uh, as I've said before, there's no pricey at the front that says, on this day such and such happened. It doesn't say who the victim is. It doesn't say what, uh, what the dates are. And it's in no discernible order as well. It's, it's, I, I'm not too sure how it ends up in that order, whether that's the way it was discussed in court, but probably is the way it was done. Uh, But things just aren't all together. Like if people have criminal records, the paperwork is not all together. It's kind of hodgepodge and spread around. But for me, I find that fascinating. I think for me, that's why I don't read books by uh, other authors, uh, because I don't want their narrative. What I want to do is open up this file and go, right, um, there seems to be a person called Bob and he found a handbag in a car on the 26th of June and I go right okay is that important I don't know and that's the great thing is that that when I open up these files for me it's like reading a big novel I sit there for a day two days uh the ca- in the case of like Blackout Ripper months and you sit there and you go right okay you learn what you you learn about Bob and the handbag, uh, and you go, okay, that's probably not important, but I'll make a note of it. And then, like the next day or two days later, you'll go, oh god, there was this lady called Ruth, and she lost her handbag, and it was, do you know, it was found in the murderer's house. And you go, oh, that's the handbag, right? Okay, and it all it, it's it's uh, it's for me, I love it because it's kind of exciting. Slowly, the the story is being revealed, and. If I was to read uh, someone else's work around it, like if you had gone Wikipedia, they would instantly give you a précis of what they term to be important and what they d- and they'll miss out the things that they don't deem uh, unimportant. But for me, I actually find that it's the the things that are unimportant that are more fascinating that give you an insight into the life of these people. So with uh, Abd al razak Said al-Naif, see, I can still remember how to say it. Um, that was fascinating. I, 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 obviously, we have a bit of a bias in this country because he was Iraqi. He was kind of, you know, uh, it was around that era when everything was unstable in Iraq. And obviously uh, after him. Just after him, one after him uh, was Saddam Hussein. So we all have a bias there. But he seemed like a really nice guy by all I could I could read about him. Uh, his wife seemed really nice. It, it was fascinating, the um, Kazim, um, who I'm going to say is the assassin, but he wasn't the assassin, but it helps with the story. He was fascinating to read about because he's the most unlikely person. If you've not seen this episode, go back, have a listen to it, episode 35. Uh, I think it's called The Several Assassinations of the Iraqi, of the Exiled Iraqi. It's fascinating. But it's the story that never gets told because everyone just focuses on the fact that Abda was assassinated outside the Park Hilton. And they focus on the fact that a, a motorbike came up and he was shot twice, once in the head, and he died the next day. But the failed assassinations, I think, are more fascinating and you go through this story and you realise what a cock-up it is it's like a litany of cock-ups and when you compare it to what's going on in Salisbury in in the United Kingdom at the moment with the uh, um the Russians and the what's the poison they're using I can't remember what they're using at the moment but yeah no it's you, you can see how uh how embarrassingly shit some of these uh assassins alleged assassins are meant to be so um that's why i love attacking the sto- the to- story straight on straight into the file because you just don't know what you're going to get what you're going to find you have to i it helps me go oh this is the story i want to tell do you know, this is the story like kind of going oh hang on instead of telling the story about uh, uh abda uh, being assassinated maybe i'll focus on his wife do you know, maybe i'll focus on his kids maybe you know when you get in there you find you find the emotional Uh, the emotional core of the story and that kind of drives you through and I think that's what's important for me so that's why I don't read uh, other people's books or newspapers I try not to read newspapers uh, just because I don't want someone else's narrative someone else's story someone else who's already cherry-picked the information what I want is kind of I want to hear hear first-hand accounts I want to hear it in their words. I want to learn about their nuances, uh, how they talk, which is important for me. And all these little details um, help me learn about a person, which coincidentally leads to the next clip. Oh, 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 bit of a bit of a Diet Coke hit then. So this leads me on to the, uh, the next clip which is from the Blackout Ripper series. This was the first part of the Blackout Ripper series. Um, I think the research on this really helped me on part one, which was Evelyn Margaret Hamilton, the first victim of the Blackout Ripper. I think that set a good benchmark for me of what of the story I wanted to tell. as Because we didn't know a lot about what had happened in her murder, because he was never seen and there was no witnesses at all, all we've got is kind of the, the the concrete evidence of what was there. So we have to kind of interpret the story of what was going on then. But, but we did, by digging, I found a lot of information about her life. And that actually helped me tell the story in a, uh, another boat going past, gunning it far too fast. Uh, it actually helped me uh, tell a much better story, I felt, by learning about her life. I think that's the important thing, is that you have to... It's... There's no point trying to tell you the audience about someone's death unless you learn about their life first. Because, as I said last week, it's, you know people are just a piece of meat. So you might as well just say someone stabbed a piece of steak. Whereas if you know that's that's not a piece of steak, you know that it's a cow and it lived in this field and this is its mum and dad and da, da 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 da. Then you know. Same with human beings as well. You learn about their life. You learn about the little details. Uh, and it helps you really, really sympathise with that person when they die. Uh, so I'm going to show, you, uh, play you a little clip now. And uh, I think this kind of nicely typifies uh, about the first victim of the Blackout Ripper, Evelyn Margaret Hamilton, uh, and her, her lonely life. On the morning of Sunday the 8th of February 1942... Evelyn rose at 7.30 sharp, lying alone in a single bed, in a drab little rented room. Another heavy cloud of depression hung over her. And although she hated where she lived, where she worked, and being unemployed, she quickly found work as a pharmacist in the port town of Grimsby in Lincolnshire, a place where where she had no family, no friends, and would once again be a single woman in a lonely bed in an empty room. Having written a letter to her mother, Lucy, which she did every week without fail, using the green and black pencil she'd loaned from her assistant, Bettina, and had forgotten to give back, Evelyn added a few pounds of her £20 severance pay to help her doting mother in her old age and then proceeded to pack. Into a large brown trunk, she placed her treasured possessions her family photos of her mother and three sisters, a stack of books, mostly chemistry textbooks, a history of women's suffrage, and political literature as she was an ardent socialist, and her practical clothes, all of which were neatly washed, ironed, and etched with a laundry mark, E2474. Into a medium-sized overnight bag, she placed a toothbrush, a hairbrush, a book, and a change of clothes. Perched next to that sat her dark brown leather handbag, containing a white metal lighter, a veneer cigarette case, a metal compact, a pink lipstick, a set of handkerchiefs etched with an E2474 laundry mark, a purse containing what remained of her £20 severance pay, roughly £1,000 today. Next to which she'd laid out her coat, hat, scarf, gloves and gas mask and having settled her account in full with Mrs. Eva Lever, the landlady of the Haven, politely declined a spot of tea, and left instructions for a railway man to arrive on Monday morning to collect her trunk and send it to Grimsby. Evelyn sat alone on her single bed, smoked a cigarette, and opened four brightly coloured cards from her family. As not only was today her last day alive, it was also her 41st birthday. So that was a clip from uh, part one of The Blackout Ripper about Evelyn Margaret Hamilton. It was the first, um, that was the night, uh, sorry, that was the day uh, that she was going to be murdered. As mentioned, it was her birthday as well. And I thought it kind of really sums up her life quite neatly because uh later on obviously she'd go into town uh she was on she'd just been made redundant from her job she'd just been paid off she'd got about 20 pounds in her wallet in her her purse uh she was on her way to Grimsby to start a new job she was heading down from Romford which is in Essex she was heading into Paddington so she got a, a, a a hotel that she'd stayed in before um in Paddington, she was going to stay the night, and then she was going to get the early morning train. Uh, and her luggage was going to follow her as well. Um, and uh, she arrived late. The hotel wasn't doing any food, so she went to uh, Maison, Maison Lyonnaise, which was a J. Lyons and Sons um, late night. It's a 24-hour kind of huge really huge and important kind of uh tea room which is in london there was quite a few of them around they're very prestigious um they were very affordable but also they were very female friendly as well which was important during world war Two. obviously you got a lot of um, servicemen in town um and lots of drinking going on so it was places where women could feel safe or so they hope they would feel safe but with with this clip i think we learn a lot about her about her lot about her life about the clothes she wears about her hobbies her work ethic uh, the fact that she was quite a solitary woman she kind of kept to herself but all of these small little details and the whole episode is peppered with that makes for a bigger picture so if you if you go on wikipedia now uh and type in the blackout ripper He's on there. Uh, the page is much bigger than it was three years ago. Three years ago, it was about five lines. Now it's kind of really, really getting a lot bigger than it was. Uh, and if you, if you look on there, literally they will say Evelyn Hamilton, probably age, collection of injuries, some very few details about what she's about. And that's because people ignore all of, all of the important stuff, which is about her, about her life, about what makes this woman who she is i think that that makes it even more potent is by learning about her life and the fact that she she as far as we know she never had a boyfriend before um she lived a quite a solitary life she was quite insular she suffered with depression a lot um she she was very kind of career focused. She, you know, uh, she did really well. To, like, um, to, given the era that that it was, she, I think uh, she was uh, trained at medical school in uh, Edinburgh University. She trained as a pharmacist, so she was doing incredibly well. But she's um, so career wise, she was doing great. But I, on a personal level, she wasn't doing particularly well. Um, she obviously went to Maison Léonard's. It was surrounded by people who were having lots of drinks and friends going out. She was by herself. It was her birthday. She was uh, she was celebrating her birthday by herself, alone, at a table by herself. So it was quite sad. And then obviously on the way home, the blackout ripper uh, spoilers. Uh, who, uh, if you look at a picture of him, do you know he, he seems like quite a quite a handsome man? Really, uh, he really does handsome man in a uniform. Uh, from what we know obviously he seemed to uh, know how to chat up ladies he was quite confident with the ladies he wasn't uh, a kind of uh, an aggressive man in terms of chatting up he obviously was in terms of violence but he was the kind of man who who knew how to lure ladies in and you know with her finding out the details first that she's a lonely woman and that obviously he lured her in by by uh, chatting her up that led to her death really so that's really important and I don't understand why people ignore those details learning about how she's lonely and how she suffers with depression and how she's you know it's her birthday and things like that you understand how she could be lured in by this man and then when you learn about him you understand that he's not a kind of a a, you know jack the ripper running around with a cape on going and jumping out on people and stabbing them to death he's the kind of He's kind of a soft sell, isn't he? He's kind of a, you know a handsome man wearing a uniform in an era where he he's meant to be trusted, and he knows how to talk to ladies. He knows how to lure them in. He doesn't. Everyone who spoke to him said he doesn't come across as a kind of an an asshole. You know, if at any point he probably comes across, across as a bit boastful, but that's about it really. And that's how he lured them in. So that's why I love using uh, the the files in that kind of way is really focusing on uh those details and, and trying to learn more about the person first priority one and then the murder. Uh that's what I'm doing with this multi-part series at the moment. I'm I'm having to rethink how I'm structuring that multi-part series because now all of a sudden I was going to I was doing it the blackout rip away where you learn about the people and then you uh and then you do about the murder but it's I'll explain this shortly, but it's opened my eyes to a new angle of the case that I'd never, I never, didn't know anything about. But le- reading all the documents and it, it's like 30 case files. It's huge. Uh, I'm learning so much about, about not just about the victims that I didn't know, but also about about said killer as well. Whose name I will not mention yet because I don't want to give it away. Uh, so <laughs> I know so but um by going through all of these files you actually um end up sometimes finding small details that are just so important that you you're just like oh my god I, I I'd no idea so um one of my favorite episodes uh, uh I think because it has cheeky cheeky humor in it and not just in the kind of the start it's kind of cheeky humor throughout I could kind of get away with it was uh, episode 16 Richard Rhodes Henley um I mentioned it last week uh I'm going to show a clip very shortly uh but to 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 open up this is Richard Rhodes Henley uh this was the early 1950s in Soho he was a Canadian sailor he'd come over to Britain uh he was on three days leave he'd got chronic masturbation addiction chronic I explain it slightly in here um and he got three days leave Ooh, burpees. Woohoo. Um, <laughs> trying to keep them under control. He got three days' leave. He was in London. Most kind of uh, uh, sailors went to the West End. Uh, he he came off at, I think it was Southampton. It could have been Portsmouth. Uh, you'd have to check the episode. Most of them came into town to go, right, uh, girls, drink, gambling. We're, hey, we're going to have three days of fun and then we've got to get back on the ship. Richard Rhodes Henley came to Soho because he wanted pornography. He had a massive addiction to pornography. Severe addiction. um, To the point where he couldn't look at the same image more than once. It's like he he would look at it, he would do his business, uh, and then he'd have to destroy it. And then And then he'd need more and more pornography and it'd need to be harder and harder. So he he was really struggling by this point with his his, uh, masturbation fixation. So I'm going to show you a little clip here, which um, when you hear the story about Richard Rose Henley, it's kind of slightly funny in a way, but it's kind of quite tragic as well. And it's even more tragic when I came across the details that you're about to hear. So uh, here's a little clip. Born in Creston, in Canada, a small town on the southeastern side of British Columbia, close to the US border, Richard Rhodes Henley was an only child, conceived in illegitimacy and whose very existence was blamed for the failure of his father's marriage. Regularly beaten by his abusive alcoholic father, Henley's childhood was either spent running away from home or being put into foster care. And the more he drank, the more isolated he became. Trapped in a solitary, friendless world. Never once having a loving mentor nor role model to guide him on the tricky issues of love, life and sex. Aged just 12 years old, it was during those hormonally difficult and emotionally sensitive years as his body grew and his puberty blossomed, That Henley's father caught his son masturbating. A natural act that almost all curious boys engage in, which is easily pacified by calmly discussing the facts of life. This is exactly what his father should have done, but didn't. Henley was abused. Henley was beaten. Henley was whipped. And for the following year, -year 12-year-old Richard Rhodes Henley would spend every night lying in bed, his wrists tightly shackled and bound to a rough leather harness secured around his waist. A barbaric device which was meant to stop this wicked boy from pleasuring himself, and his father hoped would cure him of this seedy addiction. But it backfired spectacularly and turned a common childhood habit that he would easily have grown out of into a dark, alluring, and rebellious addiction. So yeah, that came through the archives file. It was a a big, fat, juicy file. I was in the archives, I was going through the file. Uh, There was a lot of information about about the size of the room and what was in there and what was purchased and who was where at what point and it was you know it's all interesting and all that but there wasn't really uh they hadn't because he was from Canada they hadn't really got a lot of information about where he was from they were unable to interview um his family things like that um and uh obviously do you know he, he he should really have been charged with murder but he he wasn't there was a bit of a kind of a um a head to head between the canadian government and the british government and basically they let they they uh sent him over to canada to serve his time there and then he was released so he's so he's uh, probably still alive in canada at the moment but inside the file this was at the back of the file um, I It taken me almost a whole day just just to read it not even to write my notes about it and i was going through the file i was like oh this is a really interesting case but i need i need something to just to to grab onto to tell me why he's doing what he's doing and in the back of the file was uh, a psychological report by the uh, prison doctor which is done when any anyone is about to be uh, uh, potentially executed and it was details about his life he'd sat down with a psychologist and he, he he'd said uh this is who I am this is where I started this is my life do you know he was very honest that he committed the murder he confessed entirely to it um he he, he admitted he was out of control he admitted that he has a masturbation problem and when he stated that you know his father was an alcoholic he was abused he was found masturbating when he was a teenager and he was put in the masturbation harness or i can't remember how it's phrased in that clip but he was basically put in a leather harness where around his waist where basically his hands are strapped to the side of his to his hips for a year so every time he was in bed he could not touch himself and i was like that's it that's the whole case, right there. Is an abusive father, who is offended by the fact that his son is masturbating, which is a purely natural thing for a teenage boy to do, uh, and his uh, his dad did that, and that that didn't stop him from wanting to masturbate that made masturbation even more of a kind of a a goal a thing that he he has to do that he has no control of so uh that that incident or that's one of the incidents that caused him to spiral out of control um so i think i think that's uh, for me that was just a really small detail in the case i would say it was probably about two lines long if that but for me That was it. I I was like, right, that's the case there. That's everything I need to know about Richard Rhodes Henley. And all the other details kind of are built around that case. Uh, And that was just a small detail hidden hidden away. That was good. God, that was half an hour. God, dear. right. Uh, (laughs) Looking at my clock, I've talked a lot. Um, So uh, we're going to have a tiny break here. I've just found that I've got a picnic bar. Look at that! Oh, contains peanuts, milk, wheat, gluten, soya. May contain nuts and egg. Who cares? This is going to go in my get in my belly, and I've still got that donut to eat. So we get we're gonna have a tiny break here. I'm gonna play you a promo uh for our podcast that I hope you'll like. That I hope you'll listen to, and it is called Forgotten News Podcast. Hello,
1: everyone. My name is Jim. Hi, my name is Kit Karen. And we host the Forgotten News Podcast. Jim, I know we're in the middle of recording the promo for our podcast, but a thought just occurred to me. Okay. People praise the future because it is blank and featureless. They are afraid of the past because it is full of real and living things. Kit! Hey, that is absolutely true for most people, but not for us. On our podcast, we tell true stories from before you were born. Stories that made headlines maybe for a day or a week, then disappeared just as suddenly. It might be a true crime story or an unsolved mystery. It might be a strange or spooky story. It might even be a funny story. (laughs) If you are someone who would like to hear lost but true stories from long ago, then you should definitely listen to the Forgotten News Podcast. Yes, indeed. Because our show tells the stories of the footnote people from history. And sometimes the people who didn't even make it into the footnotes. The stories that we tell are living proof that truth, can definitely be stranger than fiction. The Forgotten News Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, also known as iTunes, and nearly every podcatcher out there.
2: So give us a try.
1: Tune in and listen to the Forgotten News Podcast.
2: There you go. Give them a go. Ah. Oh, no, no. oh, Jim, this is the donut. Yeah, nom, 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 nom. I should really have. An, I'm not gonna have another bite just yet. That was much better than last week's cake. That horrible dry thing almost killed me. But this is no, it's all right, it's all right, not great. It's all right, it's all right. So, um, <coughs> uh, research, okakoki. Okay. So, um, as I said before, I try not to read newspapers because obviously you get um, journalists just like myself a storytellers. that's what we do we we i think a lot of people forget that when you sit down and you open a newspaper it's someone is not sitting there and they're not recanting the details for you if they did they would go here's the date here's the time here's the people this is what we know about this person it's not it's trying to sell you a story it's it's a, it's about suspense it's about uh, intrigue it's trying to draw you in that's the whole idea of newspapers it's not just um it's, it's not just information hence if you were to pick up like a uh something like the daily mail boo, and then you had to pick up something like i don't know the times um and you were to read the same article in different different uh newspapers it would be almost an entirely different story because it's about bias um but because newspapers what they're there to do is to draw you in uh quite often what they do is they don't tell you all the information, all, or what I would say is all the really important information uh, about the story. And one of the cases that really drew my attention was the uh, assassination of Russian dissident Alexander Litvinenko, which is my uh, episode 20 that's in there. Um, originally, I wasn't going to do this case because I thought I thought it, it's been covered enough. Because I remember when it was happening, I, I, I was in London... I remember it happening. It was on the news all the time. And I remember seeing um, all the footage and the pictures of Alexander Litvinenko in bed, bald, uh, dying of uh, radiation poisoning. Uh, I remember seeing all the footage of... um, All of the the guys in hazmat suits and kind of uh, what's called Geiger counters going into itsu, the kind of the sushi restaurant in Piccadilly. I remember seeing all that and thinking, oh, well, I know all the story. I don't really need to know much about it. And then I realised that the press had got it entirely wrong. They'd entirely fucked... They entirely flipped up the story. I'm trying because we had a lot of swearing in the last episode. I'm trying not to swear in this episode. Uh, <laughs> held myself back then. They'd entirely fluffed it up. Um, and when I actually looked into it, firstly, Itsu, the sushi restaurant, really has very little to do with the case. When you when you listen to this episode, you'll realise that all that happened in Itsu is that the the assassins went into Itsu. They'd got radiation on them because it spilt the polonium two hundred and ten, and it and it was kind of found there. It was found in there, and that's all. It, that's all it was. That's, uh, uh, yet the press kind of focused on there, going, "Oh, this is where it happened." It's not where the murder happened. In the same way that if you listen to the David West episode, um, you know, with the the, the, Cock, the Cockney geezer with the with the pink suits who was murdered by his son in uh, just outside Abracadabra. That's in Piccadilly as well. Abracadabra was uh, full of radiation as well because they went there. And I mentioned that in the episode as well. Uh, so learning about um, uh, the uh, assassination of Alexander Litvinenko was uh, really interesting because it actually l- led me to learn that there were a failed attempts on his life, which were fascinating. So I'm going to play you a clip now. Here's the clip. In the Arinus boardroom on the fourth floor of 25 Grosvenor Street, the meeting began with the customary polite chatter and pleasantness. Litvinenko had his back to the bay windows, Tim sat to his right, and Lugovoy and Kovtun seated opposite, dressed like a pair of cartoon pimps. But every time that Tim tried to steer the talk to business, Covton huffed, hardly uttering a single word, and Lugovoy seemed desperate for his comrades to have a drink. As placed between them, in the centre of the circular wooden table, covered in a green fabric tablecloth, were four white cups and a freshly brewed pot of tea. Tim Riley would later state that Lugovoy was oddly persistent in his need to ensure that everyone was fully hydrated. He kept saying to me, don't you want any tea? Won't you have any? To the point where so exasperated had Tim become. Even though he didn't like tea and never drank tea, he poured three cups of green tea for his three guests, Lugovoy, Kovtun, and Litvinenko. And there they sat, everyone except Kovtun talking, with the murder weapon perched just inches from the left hand of its intended target, disguised as a humble cup of tea, inside of which was a poison, so discreet it almost had no taste, so deadly they only needed a few drops, so lethal there was no cure, and it took effect so slowly that hours from now, when the victim would start dying, his killers would be long gone. All they needed was for Litvinenko to take a drink. So that was the first assassination attempt on uh, Alexander Litvinenko. That was in the uh, Rynest Board Boardroom, which is just just around the corner from what used to be the American Embassy, the older American Embassy, uh, which was very nice and practical. But for some reason, they moved elsewhere, um, and um, th- th- that was the attempt. That, uh, the the embarrassment of basically the assassins trying to push the idea that everyone needs to drink everyone needs to drink because they wanted litvinenko to drink the poison but he, you know he wasn't having it he wasn't he, he didn't drink alcohol he he uh, only really drank tea but he didn't feel like one at the moment so it was one of the first failed attempts but it's something that the press don't talk about. Uh, and this was one of the rare occasions when I did pick up a, uh, a book. Because this guy, it uh, was a Guardian journalist. Guardian, um, one of the few good newspapers now where they still do have investigative investigative journalists. Uh, and this guy had sat down, he'd gone through all the research. And uh, it was a couple of art- articles I read first that lured me in. And then I was like, right, I need to read the book. And, and, and that was it. It was... He'd sat down and he'd gone through all the information, and there was all the evidence in front about these failed attempts uh of which there were many, so that was really useful um, and but but that was the story, so it wasn't the, the the main press were talking about the assassination, but really it was the failed attempts that are far more fascinating, and it gives a good insight into what is happening in Salisbury at the moment. Uh, with the uh assassination uh, uh, assassination attempts and failed attempts and successful attempts that are happening in Salisbury at the moment uh, baffling it really is so even in history uh, little people can be overlooked. And this is something I really found out with uh, episode 40, which was the uh, fascinating life, death and afterlife of Glindor Michael. Um, If you haven't uh, heard it already, um, it's an interesting story. I came across it absolutely years ago. God, I must I must have been like um, not even 10 when I I knew about because I, I love kind of military history and stuff like that and I knew about Operation Mincemeat, uh, I think it was it was a film in the nineteen fifties. There is one. It was the man the man who wasn't there. It, that's a kind of a retelling of it, but it's more about the Operation Mincemeat story. Um, but I always knew about this story. I always. Never knew the man's name because they never really mentioned his name. I, it was kept uh, away from all the documents. I think it was declassified a couple of years ago. There was a historian called Ben McIntyre who did a really nice documentary and a book that goes with it about Operation Mincemeat. Uh, and then he managed to find the paperwork that said, it. it, it you know, it was Glindor Michael, the... the um, the gravestone in Hueva in uh, spain was uh, adapted so it didn't just say major william martin died here it was literally major william martin uh real name glendor michael um and th- i thought that was really fascinating but on on everything you read people just kind of go they will show you the p- the picture of the dead body and they'll tell you about that, you know, that it was a dead body, that a dead body that was used and dressed up as Major William Martin, and they'll tell you all about Major William Martin, who wasn't, didn't even exist. But almost everyone glosses over the fact that Glyndor Michael was a real person, and that's what I wanted to do. Uh, is I wanted to dive down and go okay who is this person who is Glyndor Michael uh, and this could have been a non-entity this could have been a nothing story this literally could have been the story of a man who basically fell asleep and then he died he died in his sleep and that would have been an awful story uh, to try and retell um but Glyndor Michael's personal life story was just I would say it was equally as fascinating on the flip side an entire contrast to his his life after death Uh, so here is uh, a little clip from the early section of the uh, episode 40 the life of glindor michael as a recent divorcee with two young daughters to feed his illiterate and impoverished mother sarah ann chadwick was forced to marry the first available unmarried man simply to survive and moved in with a 35-year-old colliery haulier called Thomas John Michael. As a Welsh Baptist, a lifelong coal miner, and a devoted father, Sarah had done okay. And although he provided a modest income to his soon-to-be family of five children, life would only get worse, as Thomas was not a well man being riddled with syphilis, a sexual infection whose symptoms often begin with red rashes, seeping sores and festering lesions on the mouth, genitals or anus. An end by spawning into the debilitating, disfiguring and deadly infection of the spine and brain called neurosyphilis. Thomas passed this on, not only to Sarah, but also to their unborn son. From birth, it was obvious that Glindor was different. As being crippled by a lack of coordination, confusion and concentration, with a severe weakness in his muscles, sight and movement, being constantly struck down by headaches, tremors and seizures, and debilitated by frequent bouts of depression, psychosis and early-onset dementia, Although he wasn't classified as an invalid, for the rest of his life he would suffer from the deformities in his bones, his eyes and his brain. And so began the early life of Britain's most unlikely hero, Glyndor Michael. Cool. So um, um, quite a tragic life, even before he was born. I think that's what I wanted to get across from from the start. It's like going back into the history, looking into the life, even before this. There's, there's information about him that I've put in there prior, even way before his birth, because I think it's important to know that his dad had syphilis uh, and therefore infected his wife, who therefore, when his child was born, infected his child with uh, syphilis and neurosyphilis and basically left him with a catalogue of disabilities, uh, growing up in the 1910s, 1920s, as a disabled uh, as a disabled boy with very limited education, lots of disabilities, tragic life. I won't go into it here if you haven't listened to it already, but it really is a tragic story, and it really... I think it puts into context uh, him being a hero, because he is a hero, but it's it's two sides of a different story and that's what i find fascinating is in order in order to get across the idea that there's, there's this man who people don't know about and he becomes a hero basically a hero who saved all of our lives and played a really really vital role in world war Two. um if this would have been a let's say let's say for example that they did get a marine Let's say it was. Uh, uh, was a real man called. Let's say. Let's say there was a really a man called uh, Major William Martin, who died on the battlefield. Um, maybe he was shot, or maybe he did drown. And they went right. This is the perfect body. We'll use this body, and then we'll we'll put him in there. Uh, we'll float him out to sea, and then the um, the Germans will find him, and you know um, everything will be great, and we'll we'll World War Two will be solved. I shouldn't use the word solved, uh, but it it will end. Right. That it's an OK story. It's OK. But it's far more fascinating that you have a man who is basically nothing. Do you know, he's not even a footnote in history. He's and he's a nothing. There's nothing really written about him. There's re- very few records about him still kept because he, you know, he was a poor man uh, in Welsh. In in around that era, so I'm sure that didn't help uh, uh, as well, uh, given the fact that a lot of the records were kind of kept kept by uh, English people Um, and, you know, poverty stricken, disabled, uneducated. Do you know um, tragedy within his life tragedy after tragedy in his life and that's what I wanted to tell in the story, is the fact that his life starts out badly and you kind of are, what I hoped is that you'd go okay start life starts out badly but maybe it's an Oliver Twist story maybe it's kind of starts out really badly and then he kind of you know he gets taken on by a rich family and then they educate him and he goes to Oxford and then he and then he goes off and becomes a great hero, and he gets a load of medals. But he doesn't. His life just gets worse, worse and worse and worse, to the point at which he dies. Spoiler. Um, and I think that makes a nice balance between, you know, a nothing who achieve a, a nothing, a no one who achieves nothing, and then a dead man who becomes a hero. And uh, I, I think a lot of good, very nice feedback from people about that story, and. Uh, kind of people have turned around and go, do you know, there should be be a uh, memorial for Glendor Michael. And there really should be. Do you know? It's one of the most important moments in in, uh, probably the 20th century. uh, And there's nothing about it. And there should be. So, um, one of the things uh, that can easily be done when I'm kind of going through um, files is misinterpreting a character in advance and i think that's what i learned with episodes eight and nine which is the ginger ray case uh we've got fly in here's buzzing around do you know what he what he he wants my donuts you can pee off pee off i shouldn't have got rid of rid of those spiders that spider would have seen it that gone (gasps) um so yeah uh ginger ray I think cuz I've done a lot of research already for uh the Murder Mile tour. Uh if you haven't already booked on Murder Mile, please do book on the Murder Mile tour. It's very different to the podcast. It's it's not as jokey. Um I think uh I think some people have said before they've come on the tour and they go uh th- they really enjoy it and it's it's very detailed. And it's you know uh where they, where they go there's not a lot of jokes in there. And the, idea, the 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 thing is I can't really stand there in front of real people on a tour in the real locations and being sarcastic as I would on the podcast. Uh, But what I do is, there are kind of jokes littered throughout, but it really is about, it's more about intrigue, it's more about suspense. That's what I try and do on the tour. But um, I'd researched a lot of of dead prostitutes in Soho already by that point. And I'd got to the point, I think it was just a run of bad, I would say bad luck, uh, where all of the prostitutes that I'd researched had been alcoholics, drug abusers who'd been abused from an early age, come from a poverty-stricken background and just had a really horrible life. And I think that's the perception. I think that's too easy that sometimes people see prostitutes and they think that is their life. And do you know what? For for, for many prostitutes, I, that, that is as well. But with research in the Ginger Ray case and actually all the prostitutes around the Ginger Ray case, uh, I actually really started to realise just by learning about her life what a lovely lady she really was um, so I'm going to play you a clip now um, it's the, uh, from the Ginger Ray case uh, it's one of the early episodes so so some of the, the, the audio is a little bit shitty uh, I do hope that one day I might be able to uh, re-engineer that or just re-record it Ugh. but uh, here is a clip from episode 8 uh, The Brutal Death of Ginger Ray But back in 1948, the lodger in the second-floor flat was a lady of the night known locally as Ginger Ray. Born Rachel Annie Hatton in Hoxton, East London, on the 19th of August 1907, Ray was one of three siblings, with a brother, Richard, and a sister, Maria, who she remained close to and would meet on a weekly basis for meals. Nicknamed Red Ray or Ginger Ray on account of her bright red hair, she was often described as bright, breezy, and an easygoing girl who was very sociable and friendly. Although she had an extensive criminal record, having been a prostitute for 23 years, during which time she'd amassed a whopping 84 convictions for soliciting, including two charges of larceny having pickpocketed two drunken punters and two charges for brothel keeping. Ray didn't have any drink or drug issues, she didn't have any debts and oddly she actually seemed to enjoy and even embrace the lifestyle that prostitution had given her, including money in her pocket, food in her belly, an active social life and a nice warm flat. And yet, having been in the sex trade for more than two-thirds of her life, Ray knew how to handle herself. She was feisty, sharp and street-smart. As well as a lady who, everyone who knew her would widely agree, was not one to be trifled with, especially after she'd had a few drinks. But at the tender age of just 26 having been cruelly widowed one year into her marriage to an African-American stage actor named Herbert Fenwick, who tragically died in a Parisian car crash. Ray kept his name and never remarried. Instead, choosing to lavish the malnourished street kids with sweet treats, sharing her flat with friends in need and being a loyal, loving and caring companion to her many gentlemen callers. Ray lived in Soho for over 20 years. And during the summer of 1945, she moved into the bomb-damaged, but equally serviceable second-floor flat at 46 Broadwick Street. Three years later, she would be dead. So that was actually my first two-parter. I I don't think I I hadn't done a two-parter before that. And the uh, Ginger Ray episode, I thought to myself, this will only be a one-parter anyway, because I didn't think I had enough information. But as I sat writing it, I think this was the one that really shaped the way I think about cases, is that um, I was sitting there and I had all this information about her life and what she'd done that day and what she'd had for dinner and who she'd been out for dinner with and who she'd met with and, you know, her boyfriends and things like that. And as I was writing it, I found that I was slightly getting quite interested in what her life was about and who she was as a person. And then I was like, oh, God, I've got to get to the bloody murder bit because it's a murder podcast, isn't it? You expect to hear about the murder. And I was like, oh, I've got to get to it at some point. And then I realized that I'd kind of got to page five, which is kind of went my act three. So I should be wrapping up by that point. And I wasn't even close. I was like, oh, bloody hell this may have to be a two-parter but i realized that actually by writing it that way uh, by learning about her life it, it was really fascinating so i learned what a lovely lady she is that she was a prostitute by choice she wasn't an alcoholic she wasn't a drug abuser she was a widow from an early age um she uh was a prostitute um by choice because she worked out that she um hard times. she wasn't educated uh she was in the center of london expensive place to live uh what was she going to do was she going to become a waitress uh, on pittance um she'd already been married she'd already been widowed she was already upset about that obviously she's obviously not looking for another husband uh and she she was seemed to, quite an independent woman from what i could see do you know she'd made the decision she was making 300 quid a night to work two hours sex work not for everyone do you know it, uh, but that was her choice um everyone who who knew her said that she was a nice lady but she was quite strong-willed Do you know she wouldn't put up with crap she wouldn't go out and be be drunk and that she couldn't look after herself she would be at the point where if anyone would attack her and they didn't no one prior to that from what we know have attacked her she'd always say that she'd attack them with the with the uh, house keys so she could scratch their face so even if she was killed you could identify them uh, that information came became very important later on um but also by learning about her she, with her money she used that money to fund herself so she was never poor she paid her rent uh she had a good lifestyle she ate well which was especially important during those war years um and she used her money to feed homeless kids Do you know the kids who were kind of during world war Two rationing going on um kids who probably send their parents uh, either sent overseas or or killed by bombs by the Blitz. She was giving them food and giving them little sweets and treats that they normally wouldn't have. And she, she was quite partial to having quite feckless boyfriends. So not nasty boyfriends. She liked kind of sweet, but kind of guys who weren't that good at kind of looking after themselves. She was she was a real mother figure, a real a real motherly instincts uh and it was interesting finally meeting her family i met Ginger Ray's family and gave them a private tour and it was interesting a lot of the details that i told them about uh the one lady on that it was her great aunt and the information i was feeding them they were going oh my god that's interesting that is a real family trait do you know, looking at Joe, you know, kind of Looking after homeless kids, the kind of uh, niceness and the, and the and the shade of hair color that they have as well was there was a, absolutely fascinating. So um, by going into the 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 uh, by really going into the story and going into those tiny little details, it really made me rethink prostitution. Whether it's a Soho thing, I don't I don't know at all because this is just the, what I'm learning at the moment. But with that, I, I learned about. Because it was like twenty to thirty witness statements by other prostitutes who'd seen her that night and knew her well, it seemed like a really, really great social, uh, not, yeah, a social network almost. It's like a support network, a, a series of very independent women doing what they had to do to survive in a difficult era, and but very supportive of each other. I would have thought it would have been kind of. Um, bitchy and kind of like this is my this is my patch get off my patch but apparently it wasn't apparently it was kind of like you know everyone supporting each other everyone looking out for each other everyone sharing information saying watch out for this guy this girl was attacked by this guy um attacks on prostitutes seem to be very very current there's a lot going on uh so uh yeah fascinating so um ginger ray was really a fascinating case because uh, i could have misinterpreted it if i hadn't found the original archive file i think it would have been too easy uh, as some uh, information out there is it just says prostitute it just says that she's you know she's slightly on the large size side do you know she's she, i think she was 43 at the time uh i believe uh which is you know quite old uh I'm 42 so I can say that. Uh but quite old for a prostitute and she'd done it for she's quite a bit of a veteran but that's the fo- the, the angle they the, that a lot of the press focused on whereas because they didn't do any research on it they didn't look into the fact that you know she was a really lovely lady. So that really opened my eyes I did. Um really interesting case. Uh so episode <coughs> episode 34 um, this was the second episode in season two that we did, which was Brian Alexander Robinson. Um, interesting case. I did the same as I always did. I kind of, uh, I, 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 this was actually uh, interesting. This was one of those cases where, because I, because. I stand on the corner of uh, Wardour, Mews and Darblay Street uh, around break time on my tours. And I stand there and say, anyone want to have tea break? You can coffee shops there. And I stand there for five minutes and wait. And I was standing there thinking, oh, this, that alley, it's a dark alley. And just in front of me, it felt like the kind of place where you'd expect to find a murder. Uh, And so I thought, let's do some research. And I I typed in National Archives, Wardour Muse, murder, bang, there it was. And I was like, oh, okay. So I pulled out the file and it said, uh, Brian Alexander Robinson murdered Johnny... Oh, I can't remember what Johnny's surname is now. Um, And instantly, you know me, I I, I kind of... I don't always... I don't... I try and make this the victim's story. But sometimes... When I go through these cases, you find out that uh, the victim isn't really the victim. That actually the killer is the victim. And this was an interesting case where I dived in. So um, I'm going to play you a little clip now. This is from episode th- episode 34, which is Brian Alexander Robinson and the Darbley Street death. As the hail of homemade missiles died down. And the fiery Jamaican forced his way out of the limbo club into the derelict bombsite of Wardour Meuse. He didn't see Peter Richardson-Smith. He didn't see anything. All he saw was Oliver. His friend, his brother, and his family. Slumped in a sea of scattered debris, as pouring from his head was a steady stream of blood. Furiously, Brian demanded, Who did this? And with a groggy, trembling hand... Oliver said, Those white boys! and pointed to a group of snarling yobs, dashing up the dark and brooding archway and out into Darbley Street. Seeing red as his seething blood boiled, as Brian charged a Wardour Mews, hurling a volley of abuse and bottles, as he dashed into the bright lights of Darbley Street he very quickly realised his mistake. As being stood, smack bang in the middle of the street, alone and exposed, Brian was surrounded by those 14 white men, all armed, drunk and angry, as they slowly circled him. Most of whom had been in the club that night, one of whom was 25-year-old local teddy boy, Johnny Howard. As far as we know, neither Brian nor Johnny had ever met, talked or fought before. They were just two total strangers who come face to face. One was black, one was white, but both were hot-tempered. still steaming, having seen his best friend battered with bricks, fearing for the safety of his wife-to-be, Jackie, and believing that Big Jim had sent these angry white yobs to kill him. Combined with a lethal mix of this being a racially volatile period in 1960s London, Brian being a Jamaican raster, Johnny being a British teddy boy, and Jackie being Brian's white girlfriend, Add into the mix alcohol and aggression. That is all the moment took. So it's by going into his details that um, it changed my outlook of, of the story. I sat down. I went, right... Johnny obviously is the victim and I saw uh, I saw all the uh, crime scene photos and I saw Joe Johnny laid out on the floor he'd been stabbed looked like a nice guy and I thought I was like right okay so it's obviously his story I started to go through all of the witness statements and, and write up all the stuff and the more I looked into it the more I was like oh God you know this is this is not Johnny's story at all this is Brian's story and when you look into it it's kind of like you know um, Johnny didn't seem like a a great person do you know I couldn't I couldn't find find that I I couldn't find that I sympathized with him at all it's like we don't know much about him because he obviously didn't give a statement because he was dead by that point but uh, many of his friends and the people there with him that night gave a statement early 1960s obviously wind rush had happened i mentioned this in, in the episode a lot of jamaicans had come over they'd been here for about 10 years doing a great job i've been invited here to help out because we got a, a severe lack of uh, labor uh, uh good solid workers and obviously they were a part of the commonwealth so they're invited over to help uh treated very badly Uh, And still treated very badly, uh, courtesy of the current British government, who uh, basically have said that many of these people uh, don't belong in the country because they weren't given passports, which was the government's fault. Uh, But I won't go into that now because it's a little bit political. Uh, But um, so Brian Alexander Robinson, this was his story. But by going through all the details. Oh, so uh, uh, Johnny, I couldn't really side with him. A lot of his friends were a little bit racist. Uh, and that was the problem a lot of their statements were all and i apologize for my language here but this is from the statements basically it was nigger this coon that and i was just like okay uh, okay that's the era let's just go through all the details a lot of their deta- the the witness statements were absolute tripe absolute real twaddle whereas with brian and all of his friends who were, who were mostly Jamaican, but it, this was a kind of a, a club where a lot of uh, Jamaican men would meet up with uh, white ladies. That was kind of there was a lot of clubs in Soho which focused on that. Um, I started to realise that I, I was sympathising more with Brian, do you know, looking into his history, you know, um, ab- abandoned by his mum. He had a disabled arm. He'd come over to this country at an early age to try and find a better life for himself. He struggled. He kind of dipped into some mild kind of criminal activities, you know, just like he like he'd stolen some bread and some milk. You know, when you look at his criminality, he's not a big time criminal. He's just basically starving, really. Um and when it, when you dive into the story it was a complicated case for the police to look into because there was about 30 witness statements and all the witness statements were all over the shop it was a complete mishmash of information and it was hard to work out what was going on but when i when i pieced them all together i was like oh god this is this really isn't brian robinson the killer going out and stabbing a guy to death this is literally brian robinson being terrified having he bought a knife with him because a guy called Big Jim had threatened to kill him literally the day before. Literally because Big Jim wanted to sit on a seat that Brian needed to sit on because uh, he was DJing. Have a listen to the episode. It really is. It's it's fascinating about how things can escalate like, like that. Brian went outside. He found... Uh, a white guy and his friend who'd been uh, attacked with bricks and bottles. His friend had said, those are the guys who did it. He, Brian, because he was hot-headed, he, br- he ran after the guys. He ran into Wardour Mews. And then he realised he was surrounded by about 14 white guys with bricks and bottles. And what was he going to do? Literally, it's like the man was terrified for his life. And he, um, he uh, pulled out a knife. Uh, and he stabbed one of the guys. And he, he, as far as we know, never met him before. He was just looking for a way out. Uh, sure. Yeah, that was out. So um, I can't remember whether I've played that clip already. My brain, I was too busy talking. So uh, Brian Alexander Robinson, if I haven't played the clip already, here's the clip. If not then that was just a little bit of a pause there. But hopefully you enjoyed some of my great accents. Ah, yes. Don't worry, there's some more great accents coming along shortly. Um, so in this section, I'm just going to throw in a little break here. Poor gives me a time to rest and to eat some more of that donut. Mm, buy donuts. Mm. So uh, I'm going to throw in an advert break. Uh, and there's going to be another promo for uh, uh, a podcast as well. Um, whether an advert gets put in here, I don't know. Because as podcasters, we don't have control over that. Basically, we just put in a marker in our episodes uh, of where adverts can go. Because it's it's called dyna- dynamic advertising. But basically, if if our podcast host uh, has a mid-section advert that they can put in, they can put it there if they want to. But it doesn't always go there. Uh, I've listened to some of my podcasts and some of them have no adverts at all, uh, which is not good because that's how I make money. Mm. Uh, Anyway, uh, we're going to do an advert break and a promo break. Before that, here's the promo for a fantastic true crime podcast called Murder and Such. My name is Hunter.
0: And I'm Haley, And we're your hosts
1: of
2: Murder and Such, a podcast about true crime, serial killers
1: and other dark subject matter. Join us while we fill your ear holes with some crappy comedy and disgusting tales.
0: You can now find us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher,
1: Podbean,
0: and all of your podcatcher services.
1: You can like us on Facebook, Instagram, and follow us on Twitter at Murder and Such. Hope to hear from you guys soon. Bye. Bye.
2: So there may have been an advert there but there might not have been. Um. No, no. Mm-hmm. Hopefully there was an advert for uh um, donuts. Mm. Mm. I'm going to finish this one. This one's almost finished, ready. <sighs> mm. 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 That's going straight on the hips and the bum and and on the man boobs i don't care i don't care so um core yeah. so um as i said before um one of the problems with using newspapers to kind of source uh, a lot of stories is that the press really do only focus on the big picture because they're trying to draw you in and um, lure you in with all the gory details uh, <coughs> and that's the problem is that uh, so one of these cases here was episode 22. Obviously, I couldn't get the uh, archive file for this because, uh, they obviously, it only happened a couple of years ago. So uh, we won't get access to this file probably for about another 50, 70 years easily. But this was episode 22, The Murder of Marta Ligman. Sometime between the evening of Wednesday the 29th of April and the morning of Friday the 1st of May 2015, 23-year-old Marta Ligman, a petite woman with a sweet smile and a kind heart, was beaten unconscious by the man who supposedly loved her, Thomas. In a sustained assault lasting anywhere between a few minutes, a few hours, or even a few days, in a rage fueled by a lethal mix of amphetamines and jealousy, he repeatedly pounded his cowardly fists into the bruised, terrified and swollen face of a woman almost a foot shorter than him and half his weight, until she was unrecognisable, having inflicted multiple fractures to her face, hands and ribs. It was a brutal attack which should have killed her, but didn't. Believing she was dead, Thomas pulled from the loft her large black suitcase, wrapped her body in curtains and bin bags, folded her limbs and torso into the fetal position, her legs pressed tight to her chest, her head tucked into her knees, and her arms pushed down to her feet, and stuffed her into the canvas suitcase, zipping it shut. A sprig of her bright red hair peeping out of the top. How long she remained inside that suitcase, nobody knows. But after the brutality of the initial assault, being confined in such a restricted space may have proved fatal. But what her autopsy couldn't confirm was, whilst inside the case, whether Marta was dead, dying, or unconscious. Now what's interesting about this story I, I, I remember coming across this case uh, actually physically coming across it because it happened on the canal uh, I was moored up not too far away the police had roped off some of the canal in Little Venice uh, I wondered what was going on I went down had a look uh, and they said that um, a lady had been found uh, her body in a suitcase uh which was uh, you know fascinating there's a lot a lot of uh, uh bodies are found in the canals uh quite a few of them wash up which are uh, suicides because we have quite a tall bridge over by Bulls Bridge which people jump off and then their bodies float down and normally kind of end up in uh Greenford area so they float for about 5 or 10 miles and then they they end up there so we we do get a lot of bodies on the canal um but this case uh the, the the press really did focus on just the gory details you know woman found in the case uh the the, the case was banned against a boat and uh, when the people looked out of the boat they saw some kind of red hair peeping out of out of the zip in the in the case then the police brought it out and then they found that there's a woman who'd been uh basically folded into the fetal position and then dumped in the canal that's what the press focused on. And you can understand that because it's you know, it's quite uh, quite an interesting story in its own right. But what they missed out on was all the really important stuff about her abusive relationship with her boyfriend, Thomas. So that's what I focused on. Uh, this was kind of difficult to research because obviously I didn't have the archive file. So I had to use a lot of press information that was out there. But, and do my own research as well, but by what I was doing was cherry picking all of the press information that's out there, really going into the fine details and going, right, ah, okay, in this article they say uh, she was a deli worker, in this one they said that she worked at this place, in this place they said that she was, she. you know, she was about this height, so it was about trying to get all these pieces of information together, uh, luckily there was a tribun- uh, tribunal, tribunal, uh, what's, uh, coroner's court so I, I was able to get some fascinating details from the coroner's court which is when basically the pathologist comes forward and says is this is this a uh a murder trial or a manslaughter trial and basically this is where they decide and the, and the coroner the forensic pathologist basically goes down and gives that. All the evidence that's needed. So I, I, I was able to get a lot of that information. Which was really useful. And piece together information. About their abuse, the abusive relationship. That she had uh, with Thomas, her boyfriend. Um, and we, we learn about all about his lives. And uh, about the lies. And, uh, and also how he disposed. Of her body as well. They, they always mention about. How her body was found floating. In the canal. And they mentioned where he must have dumped the body but a lot of them miss out the logistics of it so I I actually as I like to do I like to do my own research on this Uh, this is one of the early cases uh, where I did uh, an extra mile a real extra mile at the end of the episode I think I started episode 21 which we'll discuss next Uh, but um, I'm saying erm a lot I should really not say erm a lot Um, (laughs) I'll just open with erm So I did my own research on this, and uh, um, her weight, they reckon, was between... uh, I said I see, now I'm focused on that now, I shouldn't do that. Her weight was roughly uh, between seven to eight stone. So what I did was I sat down and I worked out what that is in uh, in terms of cans, because obviously I, I, I wanted to work out how long it would have taken him to go from his house, which is in uh, Harlston, which is where I used to live. I used to I used to live there and around the time that the murder was going on. Actually, no, no, just before, just before. Uh and uh, I wanted to work out, because it, lo- logistically, it's kind of the press just go, you know, he dumped the body here, but he didn't have a car. So how did he get from Harlesden where he lived, where they lived, to get the body down to the canal? That's a bit of a trek. That was almost about half a mile. So what I did was this, uh, I sometimes do this, I do my own research. Uh, I got a, I got a, a suitcase, one that I'd already got. I filled it with roughly, I, th- I think it was about 125 cans uh, of Uh, tinned goods which i worked out was roughly her weight i put them in the uh big it was a big suitcase it was you know human sized uh and then i carted it from halston where the house was down to the canal to work out how long it would take me and it was difficult it was really difficult in fact in fact the suitcase really struggled the wheels were starting to buckle the um the handle had snapped uh as i was walking it down so that was a real pain in the ass as well uh, and he didn't do it at night this was kind of he'd done it in the morning so there were already commuters out he was going downhill so gravity was helping him but in order to go from where he was to where he ended up he has to go down a main road which i think on there i said was scrubs lane but it's not scrubs lane it's uh it's old oak lane uh they 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 run concurrent with each other and i got i got it incorrect uh so he was going down old oak lane uh but to get past that, you have to go past Wilsden train station, which is also Wilsden tube station, which also has a bus station as well. And it's covered by CCTV as well, because there's a lot of uh, kind of uh, industry. there. There's a lot of houses as well. And this was kind of it was dawn, you know, people were out people were commuters were about. So um, so he would have been seen. So. I, I did a lot of that research just to see whether it was uh feasible it was feasible but it was bloody hard work obviously he was he was uh, a builder so he was a lot better built than i was do you know i i sit on my arse all day I, and he, I i sit on my arse eating donuts all day so i'm a little bit flabby in places whereas obviously he was uh he was a construction worker so and uh, if you look at the pictures he's quite well built as well so um It probably would have been easier for him to do that. But um, that was one of the cases where I hadn't got the archive files, but I used other sources in order to kind of uh, tell the story. Uh, And I think it makes for an an interesting uh, story as well. Quite a heartbreaking one. If you haven't listened to it, that's episode 22. That's Marta Ligman. Uh, So I had just mentioned then Sebastiano Magnanini. Which is my the first of my Canal killer series. I did a four-part on Canal Killers. Um, this was an interesting case. Uh, again, I kind of stumbled across this one by mistake. Uh, I was going through, not the Maidervale Vale Tunnel, the Islington Tunnel. I was going from east to west. Uh, I was going through in the morning. It was a very rainy day. I was going through the tunnel as I always do. It's a tunnel that's about an, uh, a mile long. Uh, and when you get into it, it's it's very, very dark and very dank and gloomy. And in the far distance is like a a pinprick of light. And that is your way out. Uh, and there's no space for, for boats to pass, really. It's literally space for one boat. And it's very shallow. Uh, sorry, very uh, tight. So I was going through there made it out the other side. I was like, thank God I'm out. Uh, I got into King's Cross Basin. I was like, right, let's disappear. Yay. Didn't realise that underneath me was Sebastiano Magnanini who had been uh, tied to a shopping trolley and dumped in the canal. Now, I read about this case a couple of days later. It was in the press. It was really interesting. Um, But the press focused on the... If you read a lot of the earlier articles, a lot of them say... Uh, Oh, it's a potentially a mafia hit uh, because he was Italian, because he had a criminal, a slight criminal record in his early 20s for stealing uh, a famous, semi-famous kind of portrait or or, or painting, uh, which he went to prison for. He tried... And that's what the press focused on. They focused on the fact that they were like, Oh, he's probably it he was probably bumped off by the mafia, da 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 like that. But when you dive into his history, uh his proper history, and you you get a lot of the information by people who actually knew him, he was a decent bloke. Do you know what? He'd he'd got his demons, he'd got problems, he'd got drug issues but he was trying to rectify that. He was uh, a tour guide. He was travelling around the world. He uh, he worked for an events company. Do you know he, he was trying his really hardest. He, he he realized that he was immature. That he'd made stupid mistakes. He'd got a daughter who was all grown up. He was going off to university. He was in his forties. It was time to grow up. And he was trying his best. He'd come back to the united kingdom he was going to apply uh for a to become a journalist because he loved telling stories um and he decided that it was it was time to grow up <coughs> and to move on uh, and to put his druggy past behind him a lot of the press didn't tell that story they just focused on the fact that he was a drug addict and an ex-criminal but uh here is the clip Seb was still lying on the sofa. He was still, he was silent, and he was cold. His tanned olive complexion was ominously pale. His lips had a bluish hue, as around his gaping mouth, on the sofa and the floor, puddles of congealed vomit had pooled. His once twinkling brown eyes were wide open, the pupils fixed like tiny pinpoints of darkness. And his lifeless body was contorted into an agonising shape of convulsions, a stroke, seizures, and heart failure had taken his life. As 46 year old Sebastiano Magnanini lay there, dead, on the sofa of a well known drug dealer with a long history of theft. To fund his all-consuming habit, Walsh began to panic. Seb was dead, and Walsh had no idea what to do. Not having a garden or a spade, he couldn't bury him. Not having a car, he couldn't drive him to a morgue. And not wanting the police involved, he couldn't call for an ambulance. So taking another quick hit of crack to calm his nerves, which quickly caused his paranoia to spiral, Walsh roped in 64-year-old Paul Williams, another homeless friend, with the promise of money, food and Class A drugs. They needed to dump the body, somewhere near, somewhere quick and somewhere accessible. In a sprawling metropolis like London, they had just one option: the canal cool so um with that um, luckily there were lots of people who knew him who gave very good witness statements uh, so I dived into the fact that um they mentioned a lot about how he was kind of a a druggie and that I I did a lot of research into various types of drugs, what the effects were, what was going on with him again with this. There was a coroner's inquiry. So the pathologist gave a lot of details, which was very useful Uh, learning about how he died and what physically happened to him helped me really piece together what happened in that case. Obviously the police haven't given a huge amount of information about it. Um, there was some uh, convictions for it, but it wasn't for murder and it wasn't for manslaughter either. It was for um, unlawful burial, which is technically what it was. So uh, that was an interesting case. Uh, but again, with that, uh, that was the first episode I did uh, an extra mile at the end of. It's only a short extra mile. I think it's about I think it's about 10 minutes. Uh, unlike these, which are beasts, absolute beasts. Uh, but again, I did research with that. That was one of the first ones I, I, I started to do research on that because uh, the press had said, basically, um, in order to get rid of the body, he'd, he'd overdosed. He was with a drug dealer in the house with the drug dealer's friend. He'd overdosed. They'd had basically a whole weekend of just basically drugging it up. That's a technical term. That is drugging it up. Uh, and he would uh, overdosed. Uh, obviously if you're a drug dealer, what you don't want to do is call up an ambulance and go, hey, uh, I've got a guy who's died of an overdose in a drug dealer's flat. Come and uh, take him away. So they decided that they had to get rid of the body. And all the press, they go, uh, they put him in a trolley and they dumped him in the canal. But the problem with that statement is they're not... This is why I object to a lot of these news, news reports. They don't bother to do the research. It's like put him in a trolley dumped him in the canal okay there's one piece that's missing in the middle of that and that is the fact that it, the the canal is half a mile away from the house so how did he get from the trolley into the canal that's the important thing so that's why i did my own research on that i was in the area this this was just pure luck this was uh, i saw a trolley because there's some supermarkets near, nearby, there's a, a Tesco's Extra, that always trolleys dotted around that people just don't take back, there was a guy doing a little bit of building work, I told him what I was doing, uh, I asked him whether I could borrow some bricks, uh, and because um, I wanted to get Sebastian Manionini's weight right, I, I used my phone basically, I, I worked out the weight of a brick, put them in the trolley, and then I uh, uh, Took the trolley over to the canal and then uh, worked out how long it would take, uh, and that was really interesting because actually you can understand why he needed two people with the trolley, because trolleys have wonky wheels. They don't go in a straight way. Uh, with any kind of camber on the pavement, uh, the trolley starts to kind of veer towards the road. And there's no real um dips. There's n- what's it do you know when you get to a pavement and you're about to go to a road? Normally for wheelchairs or kind of prams, there's a bit of a dip. On the Caledonian Road, there's not that many. So it's hard to kind of find out where... I, I had to do a couple of runs to work out how they would have made it. But um, I did it and I worked out... I think I worked out that it would have taken them between like 17 and 23 minutes to do it. Obviously, they probably would have been rushing. But given that the CCTV cameras dotted around, you probably would have done it slowly. I don't know i don't know but um so that was interesting research i enjoyed doing that uh obviously i got funny looks from people who were like why is that man carting bricks yeah it could have been worse it could have been a dead body so um i'm gonna do one last clip if that's uh okay and that is from episode 33 which is the, the story of Jacques Tratzert, who was the corner house killer. This is the first episode from uh, this, which is season two at the moment. Uh, I'm going to play that clip now. Amidst the noisy chatter as his excited family caught up on lost time, gripping the flat black revolver in his right hand, at eye height... Jack aimed the barrel across the white linen table. His sights lined up to hit Claire squarely in her epileptic head. And as he slowly squeezed the trigger, nothing. No bang, no scream, no death. Confused, Jack tried again. Nothing. And then again, still nothing. Luckily, nobody had noticed, except Hugh, who sat there, aimlessly grinning, as if the gun was a toy and this was playtime. Hiding it in his lap, his family oblivious, Jack sat there, cursing the Canadian sailor who'd sold him this piece of shit. Ten minutes later, he tried again, nothing no smoke no blood no brains only this time everybody saw Jack with a gun in his hand feverishly clicking the trigger his sights aimed at his sister's head but believing it was just one of Hugh's water pistols Jack was lightly warned against squirting his family with tea during the meal and with that he popped the lethal weapon back under the table. Again, Jack fumed. His meticulous plan having gone to pot, having been sold a shitty shooter by some salty sea dog who'd slinked off with his fiver. Under the linen tablecloth, he discreetly fiddled with a faulty firearm, yanking this and tugging that, unsure what he was doing, having never held it or fired it before. But it was then that he heard the hammer go click. So there we go. Jack Jack Tratzard, Corner House Killer. Um... I stumbled across this article uh, this by mistake. Well, not really by mistake. I was kind of going through. Where, where, where did I find it? It was literally a, a like a, a short. Oh no, no. I I was so I was doing research for the Blackout Ripper, and because he met a lot of the victims in the Cornhouse tea rooms. Basically, I was researching cornerhouse tea rooms, and I think I think I must have searched uh, murder Cornhouse tea rooms, or it may have just. Oh, no, I was using the British newspaper archive. That was it. And I was typing in J. Lyon's Cornerhouse Tea Rooms because I wanted to try and find images inside the Cornerhouse Tea Room. So I could kind of, I like to know what a place looks like physically before I start writing it. So I can, you can kind of say, so I can say to you, you know, there were doilies on the table and, you know, there was silver service all that kind of thing. It, it really helps me learn that. And then it was mentioned that someone was murdered in a... a, a a corner house tea room and i went oh i hope that was <laughs> I hope that was in there uh, in w1 that would be lovely uh and it was it was a jack tracet case so um all it mentioned in there though was that uh jack tracet had um murdered some of his family uh because his brother he wanted to save his brother who was disabled and his sister had epilepsy and that was really all that said uh and i thought okay could be a dull case but I'll dive into it and see what it says. And this is another example. I just dive into the case. I didn't know anything about it. Uh, it was fascinating. He seemed to be a guy who was really struggling with, um, his own mental illness problems, obviously never really diagnosed. But, uh, as you, the more I tell the story, the more you kind of see that he has a lot, a lot of problems going on, a lot of issues. Um, but the details that they always miss out on any telling of the story like like they say oh do you know he shot his sister to death and his, and his dad and his brother but the fascinating detail is actually his brother didn't die um fascinating detail is that this wasn't his first attempt you know it, i think the the clip i've just played uh was the the first attempt where he was kind of working out he hadn't he'd bought the gun for 5 quid but he hadn't he hadn't tried to use it he hadn't gone off somewhere and gone okay let, let's see how this works he had no idea how to use the gun at all um so that was one of those fascinating details as i was going through the the case file itself i was like oh god this is great i had no idea i, I just thought it would get to the i just thought it'd be relatively boring he'd stand up and go bang 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 but but no this was a fascinating story about a guy who really really did not know how to murder but he wanted to murder his family for his own reasons oh it's happening I'm getting that that nose thing that cold thing that always happens when I talk for too long oh dear so uh where am I okay so with a lot of these stories uh obviously I try and be as accurate as possible even though this is a dramatic retelling uh so I'm doing a dramatization of the story but I do try and be as accurate as I can I try and give uh a lot of truth to all the details as much as possible whilst at the same time trying to be as sensitive to the families as always uh, obviously this is not always possible because uh, we're dealing with uh the death of people we're also dealing pe- with people who are murderous um but one thing i do have to say is that um families don't always know the truth this is I, I always thought that the start that like the police and the lawyers and all that sit down with them and discuss the case in full but they don't and uh, especially the police files the families do not have access to the police files just because you have someone in your family who, who are murdered or you know you have someone in your family who was a murderer it doesn't mean you'll have, instantly have access to the police files because it's not your information at all um, so do you know, I, I, I've i had quite a few um, lovely letters from families along the way, like Ginger Ray's family, and uh, obviously I'm getting to know the uh, uh, Blackout Ripper's grandson, which is fascinating as well. Uh, and you know, a, a lot of people get in touch and say, do you know, you've done a nice retelling of that story. It's very sympathetic, which is what I try to be. I try to be as sensitive as possible. Uh, but it, it, sometimes it doesn't always happen, and you know, I think I have had people get in touch before, and I, I totally understand it because if you, if you, if one of your relatives was a murderer, would you really, would you believe it? I don't know. And this is the kind of thing. I someone very recently said because uh, a case I'm going to be investigating soon, and I, I don't believe it was a murder at all. And they were like, "Well, the family entirely believes that he was murdered. This was not a suicide." And I'm like. but the family would say that and families would it's it's like they would only believe the best they never want to believe the worst i've just i I did one a little while ago and someone got in touch and said that i was entirely wrong with everything that i'd said but the problem is i'm i based everything on the police investigation file and their own relatives multiple witness statements of the murder that they had committed so um it's kind of interesting. So I, I, I do play a very I do try to be as accurate as possible whilst at the same time being very sensitive to uh, to the families. Cause obviously you don't want to upset them, but at the same time you don't want to I don't even though this is entertainment, I don't want this to come across as entertainment. I want this to come across as kind of truth and accuracy. Uh so um yeah. Mmm. Okay. Uh so Um, with this multi-part series that's coming out soon obviously uh, we'll we'll do the extra mile part three coming up soon then i'm going to take two weeks off uh that gives you two weeks off as well so we can have a bit of a rest i'll come back with uh the freddie mills two-parter which will be interesting and then we'll go into the multi-parter which could be i reckon it's i reckon it'll be a nine-parter it could be a ten-parter i don't know Uh, i'm planning that at the moment it's going very interesting um I'm going through all of the original case files at the moment. I'm not going to tell you who it's about, uh, but it's fascinating because I've been re- as I was saying, I've been researching about the the victims and trying to focus on their lives and as opposed to the killer's life. But actually, by reading, I've I read every single page of every single transcript in in all of the cases and all of the murders. Uh, it's thousands of pages, I'm still, I'm, I'm back in the archives next week to, to go back in and reread stuff that I know I need to reread, because there were elements in there that I thought, oh well this is just his perspective, and it's not really that interesting, but actually I've now found that there's a new angle that I, I think a lot of people ignore, and that's actually his perspective on his own murders, as well as the truth, so I'm going to try and do something that i don't think has been done with this case before which is really tell tell the story from not only the victim's perspective but also the killer's perspective and basing it on fact and his own interpretation of the facts as well because i think that gives you a great insight into who he was so i'm not going to do like i did with blackout ripper which was victim, victim 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 bit of the killer's story bit of the killer's story and then his life I'm going to try and tell you his life through his murders of the victims. But it will be the victim's story. But through telling their story, you'll learn about him. That's what I want to do. It's going to kill me. This one is going to kill me. I really do know that this is going to be the death of me. But I think it will make for an interesting case. Uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. So um going to start wrapping this up. Um thank yous for this week. I just wanted to say thank you to absolutely everyone who listens to Murder Mile. It is very much appreciated. Um everyone's just been really nice, given great feedback and uh just everyone who listens, you know, taking the time out of your day to listen to murder mile uh is just very much appreciated you know it's a, it's a lot of time out of your week like an hour to two hours uh so i appreciate you sitting down and listening to it even this my rambling here even listening to this so thank you for that um i just wanted to ask uh, very kindly if if you don't have to do this but only if you've got the time to do this it would be very much appreciated um as you know um i'm hoping that this could become my my full-time job i don't really earn a lot off it at the moment i don't uh let's just let's just say i'm nowhere near earning minimum wage (laughs) i would i would earn so much more if i went on the dole uh but obviously I, i i love what i do i'm starting to make a little bit of money off the adverts which is which is good but in order to earn more money i need more listeners uh and So the chance of me surviving is basically based on how many listeners or new listeners I can get in. So... Uh, if if you've got the time, only if that's okay. Uh, if you can uh, share this podcast with uh, anyone you know, with with friends, tweet about it, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. Any any forums. If if you get a chance, please do uh, share about Murder Mile. Just let people know that you enjoy it and what you like about it. You don't you don't have to write too much. That would be uh, very much appreciated. Um, or if you're listening on your any podcast app at the moment, if you can, please do leave a review on it. It really is very much appreciated. Uh, great reviews on there uh, really do help keep the podcast alive and, and get us up through the charts. Uh, sadly, unfortunately, there, there has been some bad reviews of Murder Mile. I know. I know. What's going on? Um, there, there's, I, I, I get it. There are some people out there who just don't get Murder Mile. It's, it's different. It's designed to be different. That's the whole point. It's designed not to be people sitting in front of a microphone with a beer going hey dude hey dude hey there was this dumbass and he got killed hey dude this is what i read off wikipedia he hey, hey. you know those kind of podcasts it's de- deliberately designed to be something entirely different that's what i want right from the start and some people listen to the first two or three minutes and go, nah, i don't like this and then they they go on there and then give me a one star review or in a couple of cases uh i got <laughs> i got a two-star review for a podcast which isn't even mine uh so the bad reviews unfortunately really really have put started pull have pulled me down uh so if you get a chance that would be so lovely if you can go onto itunes or any podcast app please do leave me a, a review that would be very much appreciated and if you get a chance please do share this podcast with your friends that would be would be so lovely um Thank you this week uh, to uh new Patreon supporters. Thank you so much. They were uh, uh, Nancy Perrin. I'm sorry, online, uh, when I sent you that message, Nancy, I, I wrote Stacey, didn't I? That was really embarrassing. I was trying to do too much at the same time. I was on the tube... I was thinking about the archive files that I'm d- dealing with at the moment and for some reason I wrote Stacy, Even though right above me was your name and it said Nancy. I, oh, such an idiot. That's why men can't multitask. Uh, and also another patron this week is uh, Martin Holzel. Thank you so much, Martin. Um, Martin uh, has just become uh, uh, one of our one of our big, big patron supporters. Oh, Martin. Uh, which means Martin actually gets... Uh, one of our exclusive Murder Mile mugs. There's not many of them around in the world. Uh, Stacey, who is our real Stacey, who's one of our other big Patreon supporters, Stacey uh, uh, has already received her Murder Mile mug and has been listening to Murder Mile whilst drinking because in in the mug I put biscuits and there's a special biscuit tea as well. It's it's uh, It's by Taylors of Harrogate. It's a special, slightly sweet biscuit tea. So you can watch Murder Mile with uh, badges on. There's Murder Mile badges in there. There's stickers. There's a fridge magnet. There's a, a, a thank you card from me as well. Um, and some and some biscuits and some sweets. So Stacey's already enjoyed that. Martin, very, very sh- hopefully by the time this goes out, Martin will have received um, your exclusive Murder Mile mug. But um, if you would like one of those, hopefully by the time this goes out, the Murder Mile shop will be opened. The Murder Mile shop. Uh, on there, you can buy a uh, buy Murder Mile mugs. You can buy Murder Mile e of all the scripts, unedited scripts, uh, with very kind permission of a uh, cult with no name, who do most of the music for Murder Mile. Um, you could buy the Murder Mile ringtone, the doo doo That's on there, so you can, you can download that for your phone. Uh, there's also um, personal things you can do. You can get me to um, do a personal voice message for you. Which is uh fascinating for you or uh, any other relatives as well, so that's the e shop. Yes, I am whoring myself out Because uh, I need money to keep the podcast alive. Oh, God it's expensive uh so um so thank you to Nancy and Martin. That's very kind of you. Thank you so much for becoming a patron supporter. If anyone does want to become a patron supporter and support the podcast um you can it's it's in different tiers. You know, there's there's a uh, three pound tier, and with that you get access to all uh, all my early videos. So you get videos like a week before everyone else, and you get the previews. And I I, I post special things on there that won't go anywhere else. Uh, there's five pound tier. With the ten pound tier, uh, ten pound tier and above, you get uh, access to mud mile episodes about three or four days before everyone else, with no adverts as well uh and there's a 25 pound tier which is all of that plus you get a murder Island mug which is a, a personal thank you card from me as well and then the 50 pound tier which no one so 50 this is all in dollars sorry 50 dollar 50 dollar 50 dollar 50 dollar beer uh 50 dollars uh per month i know it's a lot of money but you know there's some rich people out there i'm sure some rich people can afford it and keep a keep a fat bald podcaster in donuts uh for that Uh, You get a personal voicemail, a personal video message from me every single month. No one's gone for that yet. And uh, I don't blame you because you get to see my big fat head. But uh, yeah, no, I will be doing that. You get a personal message every single month. I really shouldn't have done that. Oh, dear. That's going to be the death of me, isn't it? Especially if I end up with like 30 people who all want personal messages. That could be a whole day. Although for $50 a month, $50... Times thirty that's one thousand five hundred dollars a month that's basically that's basically over a grand isn't it in in real money God, that would that'd be lovely that'd be so lovely <gasps> I can afford to eat food real food oh. and and uh, have pajamas that don't have holes in it so I've uh, wear my pajamas at the moment even though it's the afternoon I have a pajama I put a hole under the left arm i've got a hole under the right arm i've got a hole in the um pajama bottoms and i'm wearing a bathrobe the belt cut doesn't stay on anymore and i've got holes under both arms there as well i'm hoping that when christmas comes around i can get some pajamas for christmas that'd be <laughs> normally my dad and my stepmom do that normally they're quite in tune with things like that so they'll probably buy me some pajamas so uh or i'll just mention it so uh <laughs> wrapping up now god damn exhausted uh you probably are as well you're probably thinking when is he gonna shut up i know i know and when i started doing extra mile at the start i thought god i would struggled to get 10 minutes out of it which is why episode 21 the sebastiano magnanini episode only has a short extra mile but now i've realized because i i because uh, i'm so used to working from a script that i was like oh, i don't know how to improvise but actually even when I used to do stand up comedy as well and stuff like that i it, it was from script i couldn't improvise, but now this is like this is almost two hours two hours of've improvised this i'm basically wor- working off very a handful of notes. This is all just me working off the crap that's in my head. It is crap, isn't it so top tip of the week, I did write this down as a note uh, I thought i'd share this with you. This is something I do on a regular basis, and it's something someone taught me a long time ago, and that is if you're about to uh, attempt anything that fills you with a little bit of trepidation or even big trepidation and you're kind of uncertain about whether you can achieve it or whether you can do it or do you know um it, it fills you with a little bit of nerves and things like that this is something that someone taught me years ago and it's really really useful and i find it useful and i still do it every day so before i'm about to do anything uh i stop I close my eyes and I take three big, deep breaths. So kind of like really deep in. And out. And in. And out. And in, and out. And apparently, oh, it feels good. Apparently, I'm not a scientist or anything like that, but they were saying that this opens up uh, very important neural receptors in your brain. So if you are nervous or anything like that, all of this excess of oxygen, oxygen, it really slows down your heart, uh, extra oxygen into the brain, and your neural receptors open up, and your brain is more open and wired and attuned and kind of ready to go. So before I write episodes of Murder Mile, that's what I do. I have, I, I sit and I go, right, deep breath, and I do all that, and it uh, yeah, it really helps. I, so I used to do that before I did um, the Murder Mile walks, because I used to be really nervous about doing them. Now I'm just not nervous at all now. Pfft, fine with that. But yeah, no, so that's a really uh, useful thing to do. So if ever you, you you get nervous or anxious about doing anything, just stop, be calm, close your eyes, three deep breaths in and out, really long ones, as long as you can do, and then pause, and then go right, and then start. And you just find, you, you just find it's a lot easier to do stuff. I, I find it really useful. See, even now I'm slower with the way i'm talking now (sighs) that was nice so i'm gonna end with a song uh here's a a song that i like obviously i grew up on uh american tv shows because back in the when i was growing up in the 80s and 90s americans will find this uh, hilarious when i grew grew up in the 80s and 90s uh in the 80s well, early 80s, we only really had two TV channels. Uh, mid-80s, we had three TV channels, which is BBC One, BBC Two, ITV. Uh, early 1990s, we had four TV channels, which include Channel 4. And then in the n- n- mid to late 90s, I think we had Channel 5. Boo! And then, obviously, we started to get satellite. So prior to that, we had. Uh, you wouldn't have TV on all day. A TV would kind of come on at about 8 in the morning, 7, 8 in the morning, uh... Back in my kind of grandparents' day, you'd only have TV on for like three hours a day. That's all you'd get, like be- between 5 and like 7 p.m. Uh, I remember TV shutting off. Uh, but You guys who are kind of my age will probably remember this. TV shutting off at about 11, half 11, 12 o'clock. And you'd hear the thing. It would go, the BBC is now closing. And then you'd go, Boo! And BBC One would shut off. Ah, oh, those were good days. Uh, but obviously, uh, because there wasn't a lot of uh, content out there, so we used to get a lot of uh, American TV shows. Um, and one of them that I, I, I fell in love with that I still love today is Cheers, of course. Um, great TV series set in Boston, set in a fictional fictional bar. Um, I thought I'd sing the song, the lyrics to Cheers. Uh, but I thought I'd uh, mention about the origins of the story. So you probably know the the theme tune, um, which is written by uh, Gary Portnoy and Judy Hart Angelo, um, both singer songwriters. I think I think Gary had written for uh, Dolly Parton previously, so he knew his stuff. And these guys had kind of got the jo- got the job by the executive producers to write a theme tune for Cheers. Uh, they would sat down, they wrote. What they thought was, you know, some really good songs that would uh, be perfect for Cheers, about people in bars, things like that, um, and it got rejected. So they're like, "Oh, okay, you know, these are people who know what they're doing, but their songs have being rejected." But obviously, the guy, the guys who made Cheers, who were the writers, executive producers, directors, they'd done Taxi, they knew exactly what they're doing, and they knew exactly that Cheers, that your theme tune has to be perfect because it 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 introduces you to the world. Of what Cheers is all about, and if you don't get that right, then you've just you know. If you get it right, most of your work is done. If you get it wrong, it's an uphill struggle. Uh, so it was rejected. They did another song, that was rejected again, and um, <coughs> so um, they were sitting there. I think they were in New York. They they they're obviously uh, um, uh, they do a lot of uh, stuff for plays and things like that, and this was their big chance of finally breaking away from. Uh, Theatre and music into TV. This was a big opportunity that had been rejected twice, um, and they really didn't know what to do. They were really stuck, and they thought this is the end of our careers. This is this is the the moment. And I think that they said it was it was Gary who actually looking out the window, and it was raining <coughs> It was raining, um, and with the risk of career failure on top of him, he just thought, I don't want to be here just don't want to be here um don't want to be here sitting sitting there i just want to be somewhere else i just want to be somewhere where i can enjoy myself and they said that's where they got the idea for um the th- themes uh the lyrics and the music for cheers so it's not it's not what you'd think it would be it's about finding a place where you're surrounded by friends and people you love which is a kind of a nice nice way of telling, explaining what what Cheers is all about. about. the bar. It's not really about a bar at all. It's just about people who kind of tenuously know each other. And you gravitate there because it's people you love. So, uh, yeah. So, we're going to sing the song. If you know the lyrics, please join, join along. Uh, I can't sing at all. Uh, I, I've got no singing ability at all. But you know what? Sod it. We're going to go for it. So, after three. One, two, three. Making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure could help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Do, 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 do. And they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see the troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Bling. I got rid of the end bit because I couldn't be asked to do the end bit. Right. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you were singing along whether you were on a bus or a tube or in the car and people are looking at you and thinking, what a weirdo. Uh, So I'm going to end the episode there. Next week, we'll be back with uh, Extra Mile Part 3, which is about the sounds and the music of and sound effects of Murder Mile. Hope you enjoyed that. I'm off to have a donut and to have some Diet Coke and a rest. Blessings to you all.
0: Bye-bye. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC.